Well, my name is Kyle. If you're visiting with us, I want to say thank you for being here. I serve as lead pastor here. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, I'm not normally a mobile preacher, uh, if you know what I mean. I, I don't normally move around a whole lot. Uh, today, I will definitely not be moving around a whole lot. I bent down earlier to help Winnie, who dropped a piece of candy, and we were trying to survive the five-second rule, and uh, I split my pants. So, I, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna let the strategic placement of this fig leaf uh, do its job. So, so anyway, there you go. I I wanted you guys to be as embarrassed as I am. All right. So, Josh, we may edit that out of the audio, or it'll be the clip this week. I'm sure. So. All right, John chapter 3. Uh, we are continuing in a series we started last week. We're, we're going to walk through uh, John chapter 3, which is, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21 uh, over the course of about 13 more weeks. So we'll count in today, it'll be about 13 weeks walking through those 21 verses. There's a lot happening in this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus that we have to get into. And so, um, but today, what, I, what the main goal is to introduce you to Nicodemus and, and what he's, who he is, what he's struggling with, and, and why his encounter with Jesus is such a big deal for us, okay? So we're going to look at Nicodemus today. Um, what happens is Nicodemus is a great Pharisee leader, and he encounters Jesus Christ. And so the, the point of the series to, is to explore their conversation. It, it's to see... Uh, the inability of morality to save you, and it's to help you see also that faith in Christ is the only sufficient way of salvation. Now, cards on the table, the idea for this series, and I may have mentioned something about this last week, but I'm going to say it again this week. The idea for this series comes from a book by the uh, former pastor, now author, speaker, uh, Stephen Lawson. He wrote a book called New Life in Christ, and so uh, much of the content of what we'll talk about is uh, more original to him than myself. And so I want to get that out of the way, let you know that that's uh, where the inspiration for this came from. His teaching on this chapter really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I think we need to hear today. And so uh, we're going to walk through John 3 with, with that in mind. Uh, let me read to you uh, John chapter 3, 1 through 21. Um, I don't normally do this, but I wanted to today. Will you guys, if you're able, would you stand up as we read through this together? Uh, this is a way of recognizing that this is God's Word and not Kyle's words. All right, so let's read together. Or not together, I'll read, you follow along. Sorry, that would be really difficult. Um, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word today. Father, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and minds by the power of your spirit today. Lord, convict us uh, where we need convicting. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Uh, strengthening. Encourage us, Father, where we need to be encouraged. May we see Christ today and find salvation uh, in him alone. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If I asked you, who is the most difficult person to reach with the gospel? I think the answers would probably vary from one person to the next. You would have in mind someone who is difficult to reach. Is it the drug or alcohol addict? Is it the sexually perverse? Is it the atheist? Uh, maybe you have other people in mind, uh, that boss you work for, or that coworker, or that mother-in-law. Um, not mine, of course. Uh, however, the most difficult person to reach for Christ is the one who falsely thinks that they already have a right relationship with God. This person is often considered a good guy by those who are around him. He, he is highly moral. He does all the right things. He gives back to the community. He may even serve in a local church. Though he may appear to have some spiritual eyes, He's really blind, and he's blinded by his own good works. He's deceived, he's unable to see that he must be born again. Because of their good works, it's easy for such people to always assume that the gospel is for someone else. The fact that Jesus came to save sinners must mean the addict, the sexually immoral, the atheist, the one who doesn't do all those good works. And so that person is blind to their own spiritual needs. We would call them spiritually blind, and yet they would believe they have spiritual sight because they lack any 
true uh, ability to make them see Christ, to make them see their need for a Savior. And that lack of sight makes them the most difficult to reach for the gospel. They fail to see that everyone, all people, say it with me, all people, all people are in need of a new birth that comes from God alone. Lawson says, their problem is not that they think they are too sinful to be saved. The very opposite is the case. They presume they are too good to need a new life with God. So, if you grew up in a Christian home, you may find it easy to trust in yourself. You're trusting in your own good works. You've learned Christianese. You speak it really well. You do the acts of service. You attend church regularly. You're counting on your morality to gain God's acceptance. And that life looks good to you. It looks good to those around you. But it is not enough to satisfy the perfectly righteous judgment of God. You must be born again. You were driven by eternal longings. We talked about this last week, how God uh, created man with a sense of eternity, yet so that he cannot find out what God is doing from beginning to end, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And so you have a sense of eternity. There's a God-sized, I know it's cliche, but there's a God-sized hole in the heart of every person that only God can fill. And the problem is we go about trying to fill it with so many other things because we have this longing for something that lasts, something that's eternal, something that will fill us with satisfaction. And and so whatever you do reflects your eternal longing. Addicts are searching for eternal satisfaction. The sexually immoral are searching for eternal satisfaction. The moral zealot is searching for eternal satisfaction. The atheist is searching for eternal satisfaction, though he does it by explaining everything away. You may fool yourself for a season, but at the end of the day, you wake up and you realize, I'm missing something. Something is not right about my life. And so your eternal longings drive you to keep searching for satisfaction. And the point I want to put before you today is this, you find eternal satisfaction for your eternal longings only in the new birth. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. You find eternal satisfaction for your eternal longings only in the new birth. So let's talk about Nicodemus for a moment. John chapter 3, 1 is our verse for today. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What do we see here about Nicodemus? First, we see that he's a Pharisee, right? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. What does it mean to be a Pharisee? The word Pharisee literally means separatist. These men were a morally and socially isolated group. They had taken themselves out of society and separated themselves so that they might maintain religious purity. Being a Pharisee came with a lot of respect because of the life that they had chosen to live. By respect, I mean respect from the other elites. 
It means that Nicodemus was widely respected. He was one of the top religious leaders in God's chosen nation of Israel. To be a Pharisee meant that he was well-trained, that he was highly knowledgeable about God's Word, especially the law. He lived a life separated from glaring immoralities. He wouldn't mix with the deplorables of his day. His peers respected him greatly and praised him. Again, Lawson says, Nicodemus was a part of the strictest religious sect in the nation and the most conservative party in the land. So he was a, we'll get to it in a moment, but he was a Bible-believing conservative. If you're on the outside looking in on Nicodemus and you're seeing these things about him, you're seeing his rise to fame and the stature that he's gained, you would have never guessed that that guy needed a new life from God. Nicodemus couldn't even see it. He couldn't see that his eternal longings were not being satisfied in his commitment to God's law and teaching others to do the same. But something began to gnaw at him. Nicodemus, like all Pharisees, could see that his nation was eroding morally. And so he withdrew from others to perfect and protect that holiness that he worked so hard to maintain. But many today do the same thing. And just like the Pharisees of old, their desire to maintain holiness is driven by their pride. We are better than them, and so therefore we do not mix with them. It's a prideful thing. Withdrawing from those who are morally corrupt is not the way to purity before God. It's not the way. You are no less corrupt than those who you deem corrupt, although yours might look different. Your corruption may feel different, but you too must be born again. Nicodemus, a self-righteous ruler, could not see that he suffered from the same indwelling sin as the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the thieves that he tried so hard to avoid. He didn't understand his own depravity. He thanked God that he was not like those people over there. And so he withdraws from the crowds. He becomes a Pharisee, seeks to maintain his moral purity, his moral standing before God, which he thought would result in God's eternal acceptance. But that didn't satisfy Nicodemus' eternal longing either. He felt something was missing. And so he was restless. And that gnawing sense that something's not right, what was he missing? So he was a Pharisee. The second thing we see about him here in this verse is that he's a ruler of the Jews. John describes him here as a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the inner circle that functioned as the ruling body of the nation of Israel. Nicodemus reached the highest point of political power in Israel, and his countrymen and his peers would have said, he has arrived. He's the kind of guy we all should strive to be like. The Sanhedrin, which he was a part of as a ruler of the Jews, was made up of a high priest and 70 qualified men, which meant they were highly successful in the religious order. They were 
highly successful at being a separatist, at maintaining um, their morality, at least in the eyes of one another. This body of leaders governed Israel. Lawson adds to what that means. They wielded the ultimate authority in legal and judicial matters. The Sanhedrin was the established power block. He goes on to say it would be like combining the Supreme Court and the Senate of the United States into one ruling body. Whatever verdict this influential group rendered affected the entire nation. That's the Sanhedrin. That's what Nicodemus is a part of. So we might say that Nicodemus had all the power and all the authority that he could ever want, yet something's not right. Something's missing. And the power and the prestige that that he knew was a constant hit of dopamine, no doubt, but it wasn't enough to satisfy that eternal longing in his soul, that God-sized hole. Lawson adds that his achievements were like biting into cotton candy. They were sweet for a moment, but were without substance. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you think about your life. Is there some point in your life where it seemed like as you gained more of the world, you were only left feeling emptier, not more fulfilled? Maybe that's part of your testimony. Maybe that's you today. You think, yeah, that's me. The more I gain of the world, the more things seem to go right, the more I think to myself, something's amiss. If that's you, then you know the same gnawing, empty feeling that Nicodemus felt. So we know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Jews, and what this means for us What it meant for them is that they were strict, conservative Bible believers. He believed in divine inspiration. What I mean conservative Bible believer, I'm not thinking politically conservative necessarily, though he would have been that. I just mean he was conservative about God's Word. Here's what we mean by that. He believed in divine inspiration, that every word of his Bible was breathed out by God. It was considered profitable for training in godliness. Lawson adds, as a result, he believed in the sovereignty and the providence of God. He believed in a final resurrection at the end of the age. He believed in a future kingdom of God upon the earth. He believed in the eternal destinies of heaven and hell for believers and unbelievers. He goes on to say, Nicodemus didn't try to explain the Bible away. He took the Scriptures at face value, just as we should. But this was unlike the Sadducees, who were the religious liberals of the day. He did not deny the reality of the supernatural world, nor did he doubt the realm of angels, miracles, and the resurrection as the Sadducees did. To the contrary, he believed that these biblical matters to be exactly as God had recorded them in His Word. Now again, looking at Nicodemus, you would never think that this guy needs a new life from God. But here's what we know about the new life from God. Agreeing with right doctrine does not produce reconciliation with God automatically. 
Even the demons believe these truths and they tremble, right? That's what James says. What Nicodemus was holding on to is a dead orthodoxy. He is orthodox, but it's dead. There's no life in him. He has a head full of knowledge, but a heart that is as empty as can be. Nicodemus needed to be born again. Now, the same can be said for many so-called religious persons today. Having the right beliefs or doing good works, or those things do not guarantee your salvation. A heart of stone can be easily like the tablets of stone that contain God's law. They're full of the knowledge of God, but they are dead to save. And so I ask again, does this describe your own heart? Your own life? Is your mind full of the knowledge of God, but your heart dead to Christ, empty to Christ? Maybe it describes someone you know. The fourth thing we learn about Nicodemus is that he's not just a teacher, he is the teacher of Israel. Jesus addresses him in John 3, 10, when we read it earlier, and Jesus answered him and said, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Lawson adds this comment, Jesus acknowledged that Nicodemus was the premier Bible teacher in the entire nation. This means he was an expert in God's written word. He was respected by others as an expert because of his knowledge and command of the law, and he would have held the final word in any uh, to, to say what any Bible passage meant. He would have been that revered. And yet his problem is he cannot see his need for a new life from God. He longed for something still, and even though he had spent his life pursuing God's ways, he's empty. Nicodemus needed God himself, not just the ways of God. He needed a new birth. He needed spiritual life from God. Revered Nicodemus was simply a dead man walking, spiritually speaking. Lawson adds that Nicodemus is a prime example of someone who can know many facts about the Bible but not personally know God and can be so close to the kingdom of God yet so far away from it at the same time. And so it is with countless people today. We can memorize Scripture, we can know sound doctrine, and even teach others, but not be truly right with God. We have, my friends, eternal longings. And so you strive for eternity. You strive for something that is sufficient for eternity. And in that striving, you search for eternal satisfaction in all the wrong areas. And you come up short. Your strict moralistic efforts are merely attempts to give yourself a new birth, and it will not work. You cannot earn God's acceptance by your own efforts. Morally good people are great models of virtue, but that does not mean that they are Christians. Amen? 
in God's common grace, we have a conscience. We know right from wrong, and so we follow right from wrong. But God says in His Word in Romans that that is not enough to save. It's not enough to save. And so morally right people, morally good people that we look at as model of virtue, they, they gain the applause of man, both inside the church and outside the church. They might be thought of as godly people because they attend church regularly. They teach Bible studies. They pray for people. And at their funeral, the preacher may even say to the crowd, he was a good man. Or as we say it here in the South, he was a good old boy. To which the crowd will heartily agree. And in doing so, the preacher wrongfully blends self-righteous moralism into saving faith in the righteousness of Christ alone. And the temporary approval of man does not equal the eternal approval of God. Such people must see their real need before it's too late. They're in need of new life. They're in need of new life. Lawson adds some stuff here that I wanted to read. It's, this is a dangerous place to be. Morally good yet dead in your sin. People in this state of self-deception are counterfeit believers who live in a masquerade world. They can't see their own distance from God. Simply put, these people do not know that they do not know God. He goes on, he says, there are many like this today. Not only are there uh, not only are they church attenders and serving in ministry, but they lecture in seminaries, they stand in pulpits, they serve in children's ministry and teach Sunday school. They are well-respected citizens in their community. They separate themselves from the world of egregious sinners. You would never see their name in the headlines for something bad. They try to live a pure life. However, they still have an internal problem. They're spiritually corrupted by their sin and dead. Their religious practice gives this aroma of life to others. We look at them and we would say, yes and amen, but there's no genuine spiritual life within them. Lawson again, there's a thin veil of morality that lies on the surface of their sinful lives. All the while, their souls remain spiritually dead. They are reformed, but have never been reborn. They've learned to be good people, but have never learned their need for Christ. They have adhered to a strict code of morality, but have never had their hearts changed by God. Parents, can I talk to you for just a moment? If you are raising children, currently raising children, you need to be very careful of creating morally right people who have no understanding of their need for a Savior. It's so easy to do because you've been called by God in your home to be a disciplinarian, to help your child understand the difference between right and wrong. And so most of parenting, if we don't connect the dots, becomes law. And we're strictly imparting the law. If you do this, 
You break the law, you receive just punishment for that. If you obey the law, you receive just reward for that. And we're just reinforcing the law. And so we raise morally good citizens who have no understanding of their need for Jesus Christ. We have to, as parents, connect our law with the gospel. That your breaking the law, son and daughter, reveals your need for Jesus Christ as Lord. Be careful. Be careful not to miss that. It's so easy to create good children. It's easy. It really is. In, in most cases, a very simple thing to do. Attention, consistency with discipline, and you'll end up with good children. But if we don't connect the dot, we'll end up with children who think they're right in the eyes of God because they grew up going to church, they sat in Sunday school, they learned some Bible verses, they got baptized because they could say all the right things. And then when the rubber meets the road, it turns out they never really knew Jesus Christ. And what a sad thing to experience later in life. And so we must be careful how we raise our children. The morally good person trusts their own morality for salvation. They, they assume that in their morality they've achieved right standing with God. And friends, you do not want to stand before God Almighty with your moral tally sheet in your hand and hope, put the hope of your eternal destiny on whether or not you did and said and knew more good things than bad things. But that's what we're saying if we say that we're relying on our morality, if we're relying on our good works. We're saying that at some point, that must outweigh all the bad things that we knew and said and did. And it's foolishness. Any unrighteousness, any sin is worthy of death. That's the wage of sin. It's death. But the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we must have our hope somewhere else. God's standard for holiness is perfection, and so it is unattainable for you and I on our own. We are all unrighteous in the sight of God. Your eternal longings will never be eternally satisfied by pursuing morality because you will fail. Time and time again, you will fail. Your morality is fragile. It's broken. And so you need something concrete to rest your eternal longings on. Friend, we all need the same thing, whether you are a felon in prison or a fellow church member. We need divine grace from God to transform our hearts. Titus 3, 3-7 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, so he's writing to encourage the church, saying here's who you once were, and then he's going to remind them of what's taken place. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by His grace, justified by His grace, made right in the sight of God by the grace of God, we might become heirs with Christ according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Everyone must come to the same place of humility. I think it was Jonathan Edwards, I could get it wrong, Puritan pastor, 17th century, who said, you bring nothing to Christ for your salvation except your sin. We don't come to Him with our good works in our hands and say, I'm worthy of salvation. I've, I've done this much, now I need a little bit more to get me over the edge, Jesus. We don't come to Him and say, well, if I must, because on my own I'm I am good enough, Lord, surely. But I'll do this so that everyone else can see what needs to be done. We don't come to Him with any pride and arrogance at all about who we are. We come humble, humiliated might be a better word, by our sin, broken over it, and we say, Jesus, here is my sin. Would you grant to me your righteousness? I'm trusting you for that. Everyone must see their corrupted nature so that they see their need for God's saving grace. When you look at a holy God, you shouldn't see your need to be more moral. Rather, you should see your need for a brand new life. We don't look at God and say, man, He's perfect. Those Ten Commandments are difficult. I really got to shape up here. I really got to get, get myself together. You know, maybe the Lord allowed my pants to split today just so I wouldn't stand here with any kind of arrogance before you. Amen? I'm as humbled as I can be today. Lawson says, No one is too sinful to be beyond the saving power of God, nor is anyone so good that they don't need it. Amen. Maybe some of you were once depending on your own self-righteousness. Maybe you were blind to your need for God's new life. Maybe that's you today. Could you be self-deceived about your standing with a holy God? Are you missing true salvation in Christ Jesus? I was reading in my Bible reading this week, and in Matthew there, Jesus presents this idea of the sheep and the goats. It's really a quite terrifying parable. Jesus is standing there, and He's talking about what judgment will look like, this final judgment that He'll separate the sheep from the goats. And to the sheep, He will say, you clothed me when I was naked, you fed me when I was hungry, you visited me when I was in prison. And they'll respond to him, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, because they didn't see him specifically is what they're getting at. When did we feed you? When did we visit you? When did we clothe you? And he said, and as much as you did it to others, you've done it unto me. So your works matter. Your works are, just as James gets at in James chapter 1 and 2, your, your works are the fruit of faith. But they're not, the, they're not the producer 
of faith. They're not the source of faith. They're not the source of salvation. And then he gets the goats on the other side and he says the same thing that when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in jail, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Lord, when did we see you? We, We didn't see you, Lord. He said, as much as you didn't do it unto these, you haven't done it unto me. Then he cast them into eternal damnation. So Christ is saying, he's letting us know this truth, there will be many who stand before the Lord in their own righteousness on the last day, thinking they are sheep and they are really goats. Many who thought they were saved because of their good works, yet are not spiritually born again. And so you must, my friend, you must evaluate your life with real sincere honesty, weighing your life against the Scriptures, weighing your faith and the fruit of it against what God's Word says is genuine and what it says is false. You must do that while you still have time to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Lawson adds this. Again, I think it's helpful. Maybe you know a lot of Scripture, but you don't know the God who wrote it. Maybe your head is full and your heart is empty. Maybe you believe some facts about Jesus Christ, but have never placed your faith in Him. Maybe you're trusting the faith of your parents or grandparents. Maybe you're trusting in your own church membership. Could it be that you come to church but have never come to faith in Jesus Christ? Could it be that you verbally profess faith in Jesus but do not inwardly possess Him? So you are striving to satisfy your eternal longings, but you haven't found eternal satisfaction yet. Listen to me. You do not need another self-help book. You do not need something else to tell you how to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get your life together. You do not need more integrity. You do not need to upgrade your morality. You do not need to serve in more ministries. Because even if you could achieve those things, you would still fall short of God's perfection, which is what God demands. The Bible is abundantly clear, Lawson says, that a right relationship with God is gained not by what we do, but by what He does for us in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Lawson adds, to get into the kingdom of God, you must have faith alone in what God has done for you. From start to finish, the new birth is the exclusive work of God in us. We cannot save ourselves, and we must realize that we contribute nothing to what Jesus Christ has accomplished. God must convict our heart of our own sin. He must create within each of us a hunger and a thirst for His perfect Righteousness, 
God must freely give what we so desperately need. He alone can give us a new heart and a new start with Him. So we turn to God through Jesus Christ. What Hebrews, again, 7.25, He is able to save, God is able to save to the uttermost all of those who draw near to the Father through Jesus Christ. We've come through Christ. And until God creates this new birth in us, Lawson adds, we will remain the hardest person to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not one of us will be saved until we know that we are lost. Not one of us will seek grace until we see our need of it. Not one of us will believe the good news until we know the bad news about ourselves. Without God's intervention, we are all like Nicodemus. We're stranded and without hope. And you may be someone who thinks that you understand truth, but you have not experienced its saving power. When God gives you a new heart, He transforms your affections so that you love Him and you would desire now to obey Him. And so I ask you today, have you experienced the saving power of God? Have you received a new life by faith in the finished work of the cross of Christ Jesus? Friend, if you will repent of your sins, whether they be sins of the self-righteous, moralistic nature or the unrighteous, immoral nature, if you will repent of your sins and you will turn in faith to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you will be saved today. Today will be the day of your salvation. Do not quench the Holy Spirit if He's leading you to come to Him. Don't turn away. This is a moment given to you by the grace of God for your salvation. Don't miss it. I implore you today, implore you today to turn to salvation in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21, let me read that to you to close this out. Second Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul's writing here of this new life in Christ, your new creation, and then he's saying how it happened. And he says, for our sake, God made him, the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. The him there is Jesus Christ. For our sake, the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ is your only hope for salvation. And so if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll turn in faith to Jesus Christ, He will cover you with His own righteousness. And there will never be a need for you to think again 
by my own might have I achieved my salvation, or I must today pull myself up by my bootstraps and work for my salvation. You can be at rest. The writer of Hebrews calls it resting in Christ. It's a rest for your souls. That's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. You can come to him today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in the face and the life of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, today we're looking at a man named Nicodemus who, by all appearances, had everything needed for salvation. And yet, Christ looks him square in the eye and says, you must be born again. Father, would you help us today see our need for Christ Jesus alone for our salvation. Lord, I pray, this is a, it's such a delicate thing, but I ask, I beg, Father, for your Holy Spirit to convict and to draw anyone, anyone to you who is resting in their own righteousness for their salvation. Lord, reveal the futile nature of that hope that they may turn and hope in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that all of our eternal strivings, this God-sized hole that we have within us is filled only by the Spirit of God which makes us alive. Lord, would you save your people today? I pray that nothing, not the enemy, not their own doubts and fears, not their own frustrations over their failures, their own shame, I pray that nothing would keep them from coming to you today. And Father, for any of us who who have walked this road before and we've truly been saved, but we're now in this place where we, we, we believe the right things, but we do find ourselves daily kind of leaning on ourselves. Would you forgive us of that, Lord? Would you help us to remember that the gospel is for everyone, that it is, it is for all of life? It's, it's not from the moment of justification and that's it, it's it's for our justification and our growth in godliness. And it's what we'll rest on as we burst onto the scene of the new heavens and the new earth when we breathe our last or you return. Still, we will proclaim the goodness of Christ Jesus in our salvation. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.